This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. We've got a, um, we normally ramble about on Monday mornings. Right, Rev? We normally make it up as we go. True. The week kind of writes itself. Um, by noon Monday, Trump has done something that gets everybody's attention, good, bad, or indifferent. This is going to be a little bit different. A buddy of mine reached out to me. Henry actually called me a several weeks back and said, you know, we're doing this big event. We want to get involved and, and promote it and, and talk a lot about it. Um, I got three people in the studio. I introduced the three. Ben Ziegler, Henry Swink, and Stephen Mott are with us. Stephen's the curator of the Florence Museum. Henry is um, a proprietor at McCall Farms, a big sponsor of our feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance, but somebody very historically interested in our area, where we come from, what we're about, what we do. I refer to Ben as our resident historian, whether he likes that title or not. But um, but Ben, Ben and I have had a friendship for a long time, but our friendship on this particular issue, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, in, in 2006, I got elected to county council in 04. And in 06, you came to me about uh, heritage tourism. And you felt one of the attributes we had that we could most successfully market was Francis Marion. Um, Henry has argued to me, that other than General Washington, Marion would be the second most relevant general of the Revolutionary War era. Um, you lobby the General Assembly. They create the Francis Marion Historical or the Trail, Trail Commission. Trail. And, and out of that comes an attempt to commemorate and, 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 and memorialize the life, history, and legacy of General Marion. Did I get that close to close to accurate? You did. And really, thank, thank you, Ken. It really did have sort of a... a several prongs to it. One was commemoration and memory and better historical understanding. Uh, but a, another thrust, as you pointed out, was using the Marion story as a way to uh, leveraging it into what the tourism people call product. Uh, finding the Marion sites, telling the Marion story, bringing people off the interstates into the back roads of PD, uh, helping drive some economic development and prosperity uh, along with conservation and preservation marrying those two through a tourism trail that focused on campaigns of, of Francis Marion. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the late Bill Chandler, uh, and Fred Carter, and I sort of put that together back in 2006. I chaired the commission uh, for three years, and we did uh, some great things. We did all the archaeology that we wanted to do to find uh, most of the major Marion sites. Uh, Steve Smith at USC, who wound up writing a book uh, that I commend to your listeners called Francis Marion, the Snows Island Community, Myth, History, and Archaeology. Steve uh, did all the work. We were able to locate some fascinating Marion sites that we can talk about. And um, we had a, a master plan done by a national consultant that won a, an award, a historical planning award. Uh, and just about that time, the effects of the recession were kicking in, belts were tightening, heritage tourism ceased to be a priority for state government and ceased to be healing as it was in the early 2000s local government so trail commission uh, ultimately sort of went into hibernation uh, by about 2010 2011 uh, henry has injected a lot of energy into it lately uh, henry was part of a group that uh, helped push this exhibit at the museum which is fascinating and i look forward to talking with you about that uh, but henry has almost single-handedly gotten the gotten the band back together so to speak with the trail commission henry's now a member uh, and he's been working with the governor and the General Assembly to jumpstart that effort to 
bring that Heritage Tourism Trail, to bring the Francis Marion sites uh, online and to public attention, and hopefully reap some of the benefits that okay. we were looking to looking to. Bring. Okay, Henry, I'm gonna jump to you for a second. Yeah. So, so, so Ben gives you a lot of credit for rejuvenating, um, re-energizing. Um, you're a Southern gentleman. I love to hear you tell stories. I love to hear you talk about your heritage, where we come from, your past, what matters so much to you. So, 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 so why now? I mean, why, why did you decide now to be as involved as you are? Well, Ken, that's a great question. I'm not sure exactly why now. Certainly, Francis Marion and our local heritage has always been important in my whole life. I've always enjoyed it. <clears throat> um, maybe, Ken, if we, if we want to reflect um, at my age, I've turned the company over to some younger folks in the business, family, family members in the business. They are doing a great job, so I'm looking for something to do. Certainly, that's probably part of it, but it's always been um, a keen interest. But I've had a lot of support. I'm in the Florence Kiwanis Club. I approached the club with this kind of thought in mind. They jumped wholeheartedly into agreeing that this is a good thing, a good project for our club to do. So I've had a terrific amount of help with the um, Lawrence Kiwanis Club. So they've been a big part of it too. But it's been a great journey so far. Stephen, I, I want to go to you. You'd be, uh, I, I don't know you as well as I know Henry or Ben, obviously, but you're the curator at the Florence Museum. There is a display that, that is uh, available to the public or will be available uh, to the public. So talk a little bit about p- putting this puzzle together. I mean, it's easy for Henry to want something done and me to want something done and Ben to want something done. There's got to be a venue. There's got to be an organized effort to make sure we do this the right way. How, um, I don't want to say how difficult, how complicated, how rewarding, how gratifying has it been? Well, this has been a a successful exhibition for us. I think partly because I am the creator of both art and history at the museum. And uh, those things don't always connect or overlap but there are some moments when they do and francis marion is the story of the revolutionary war in the pd so in trying to tell that story we have to talk about him and uh, there were because there were a lot of there was a lot of interest in marion in the early and mid 19th century that interest came from literature the biographies that were written about him the stories that were told they were picked up by these 19th century artists there's a lot of material to draw from, draw from. And the purpose of the exhibition is to inform people about Marion and his significance through 19th century art, but also recent archaeology. And in doing so, compare the myth of Marion to the facts, the things that we can know about him through science, through archaeology and modern research. So it has been rewarding in the sense that uh, this exhibition, I think, successfully pulls those things together for the first time. I mean, these artworks, they were from prominent 19th century American artists uh, like John Blake White, who was also from South Carolina. The famous story of Francis Marion inviting a British officer to share his meal, known as the Sweet Potato Dinner, this is a story that was told by Mason Locke Weems, that's early biographer of Marion's, and then it translates into art. Um, first as illustrations, 
in these early biographies, very crude, you know, unattributed to any particular artist. But the stories and the images get picked up, and then art becomes a vehicle for the creation of the Marian myth. And for me, any subject of interest for an exhibition becomes more interesting when you don't have all the answers. The question in this case is, did these things that he became famous for in the PD, a lot of them, did they really happen? Or are they part of a fantasy that was written about him that was created and then perpetuated through the dissemination of art and literature in the early and mid-19th so, so, so the intent of the exhibit is to make sure we're accurate. We're not embellishing. We're not exaggerating. I mean, we... It's to, prov- it's to, to show both sides of the story. Okay. Well, to promote conversation. I mean, no doubt we were talking before we came on the air. You know, Marion um, took command of the Williamsburg Militia at Witherspoon's Ferry, where the statue is, in what's now Johnsonville, Florence County, on August 17, 1780. Uh, he had been sent away by Horatio Gates, who was the American general who had marched into South Carolina to liberate the state. The British had taken Charleston. South Carolina had fallen in, in May of 1780. Uh, Gates... Um, Marion tries to hook up with Gates because Marion's evacuated from Charleston. He breaks his ankle, and that's a whole whole other story. But he breaks his ankle before the city's captured, and he's evacuated, so he's not captured. He's a colonel in the Continental Army. He's the highest-ranking officer in the state once uh, Charleston falls. And so once he recuperates in the summer of 1780, he goes to get a group of um, neighbors and like-minded um, friends to go and offer their services to Gates, who's just marched into South Carolina. Um, Gates, in effect, laughs at him. It's this sort of ragged group of, um, you know, it's described as um, uh, about 20 men and boys, uh, some black, some white, all miserably equipped. And so Gates is, you can almost see this this great general. He's the hero of the Battle of Saratoga. He's a guy who's going to liberate South Carolina. He doesn't know what to do with this ugly little misfit bow-legged, hook-nosed, short, swarthy, limping uh, South Carolinian. So he sends him away to, quote-unquote, gather intelligence. Gathering intelligence is sort of a, to me, is sort of a euphemism for staying out of his way. He sends Marion to take command of the Williamsburg Militia, which is a group that's gathered, and they've actually asked Gates to send them someone to to command them. So Marion takes command of the Williamsburg Militia. Uh, he, He rides out of the camp at Camden, they get about 12 miles down the road. Uh, They're awakened by gunfire, uh, and they know the, uh, a battle's getting ready to start. They have the question whether they're going to keep going or go back and join the fight. Marion says, no, we're under orders. We've got to keep going. So they ride on. Uh, unbeknownst to them, the American army is annihilated at the Battle of Camden. Uh, so when Marion rides into that camp on August 17th, he's it. There's nobody else with a, a viable fighting force in South Carolina. So between August of 1780 and April of 1781, when Nathaniel Green comes into South Carolina to start the campaign that ultimately leads to Yorktown, um, Marion, that's his partisan career. That's his career, uh, the partisan phase of his career. That's his career in the PD. That's where all of these famous stories and, and battles take place. Marion has a different role in the war after 17, April of 1781, we can say without doubt that Marion kept the cause of liberty alive. He fought with a band of citizen soldiers, very unlikely group to keep the great British army off balance, but they did. And that's, there's no 
question about that. Uh, what's mo- more interesting to me and what Stephen, I think, was alluding to is the literature and the art then take that and try to leverage it into something more thematic, something uh, bigger. And, and Weems starts in 1809. He is a, uh, he's the most prominent publisher in the U.S. He's a, an Anglican clergyman, Episcopal clergyman. And he, his first great work is a biography of George Washington that's the source of the, the myth of the cherry tree. Uh, and Peter Ory, Marion's lieutenant, um, good friend, writes a history of Marion's uh, exploits, a, a biography of sorts, and sends it to Weems to be published. And Weems takes it and rewrites it, and publishes it in 1809. Uh, Ory said that Weems turned his history into romance. I mean, even Ory recognizes this. He said, look, this this stuff didn't happen. But what Weems is trying to do is to create a national myth. He's trying to bring the infant, the, the states of the infant republic together. So he's creating these themes like George Washington. He, he calls Marion, to Henry's point, he calls Marion the Washington of the South and sort of bringing, bringing the southern states into the, um, into the conversation early in the republic when they're looking back on the revolution. What was the, what was the war about in the South? So, uh, again, I, Steve Smith in his book says that when Southerners were traveling west to settle Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi between the 18-teens and 1830s, most of them carried two books with them, uh, the Bible and Weems's Life of Marion. So that starts to create this, this idea of Marion that sort of transcends the actual historical uh, record that we have. And I think I mentioned to you as well, you know, contemporary accounts of Marion, um, particularly immediate post-war, uh, he is not characterized as a, as a great leader in the late 18th century sense. He's not a great general who wins big battles. Uh, you get the sense from Lord Cornwallis uh, that he's more of a pest than anything. Uh, Bannister Tarleton, Marion's great adversary, doesn't even mention him in his memoir. So, you know, he's, he's fighting a, a different kind of war than Washington Cornwallis and Green are fighting. But Ben, was he fighting that kind of war out of necessity? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've heard him, okay, and I'll give a characterization. I want to get your take on this. It, I've been led to believe through some of my readings and understandings that Marion may not deserve credit for winning the war, but he certainly deserves a lot of credit for not losing the war. Absolutely. Is that as, a fair as, as assessment? Steve Smith says he kept Steve Smith's whole thesis in his book on Marion is that Marion kept a community of resistance together. The people who live in our part of the, our part of South Carolina, our people, our ancestors, uh, Marion kept them on the American side and allowed them to fight, melt away into the swamps when time to do that, come back together. I mean, this is very much as you and I said, this is, this is the origins of partisan warfare. He wasn't out there to win big battles. He wasn't taking and occupying towns. He was keeping, A, keeping the British off balance, and B, perhaps more importantly, keeping this community of resistance together, keeping the American cause alive. Because you got to remember, people who lived up here um, before the Revolution, and there's a whole show you can do on this, you know, it wasn't a clear-cut thing as to what side you were on. It's, a, it's been compared. One loyalist of the period said that it was like a patchwork quilt. I mean, it was, you, you had people, neighbors who were on different sides. It was truly a civil war. But there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm in large areas of what's now the PD, what have been called the backcountry, 
uh, for either side. And so Marion had to win some hearts and minds in addition to, to winning you know, military uh, objectives. Let's take a break. Uh, first break of this hour, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Kind of a special edition of Wake Up Carolina. We're not doing the normal, um, you know, rambunctiousness of conservative talk radio, but rather a more cerebral time with three gentlemen uh, from this area. Henry Swink, is a business guy here, been with McCall Farms. How long, Henry? I mean, the company's how old? Uh, it's, since the 50s. Yeah, uh, since the 1850s, right? I mean, I know you've been there. 1950s. But, but the family's business is how old? I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Uh, nearly two hundred years years old. I'm Stephen Mott, curator, Florence Museum. Ben Ziegler, are are you the founding member of the Francis Man Trail Commission? I was the the first chairman of the commission when it was created by the legislature in 2006. And her, Henry is the current member, breathing some energy and that's life right. into Henry this newest and latest is. effort. And um, and Stephen, I want to go to you if you don't mind, and we'll get back to Ben sure. here in a second. So um. So, so, so people want to know more. People wonder why they don't know more. You have an opportunity for people to learn more by visiting the Florence Museum. Fair? Right. So Francis Marion, having grown up here, I'm from Florence. Having grown up here, Francis Marion was always a, a background character, right? And the stories that I heard growing up, um, businesses named after him. You learn about him going to school. Uh, and so I think because he's, he was a recurring character in the background uh, growing up in this area, uh, we we come to think of him as a sort of local hero, that he had this local significance that wasn't necessarily portable, uh, that wasn't a national reputation. It was just a local reputation. So I think that was also true in those years or those first few decades after he died. He had a small reputation. And then his reputation grew, right? and, and art played a big role in that. Uh, these major American artists had decided to represent Marion as this heroic figure, and that is playing off of the literature and the biographies and the stories that were being told about him. Uh, and so in the middle of the 19th century, there's this huge swell of interest in Marion, and that's when his reputation as a hero really begins to develop. And so part of the purpose of the exhibition is to demonstrate that through art and through literature, Francis Marion wasn't just a local hero. He wasn't just a local story. He was very much a figure on the stage of national events. Being the most historically significant figure of the PD, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, and you know, in, in historically significant uh, in terms of the the history of, um, of of our country, certainly revolution, and and um, I, I'd, I'd struggle to find somebody more significant. But I think the the point that Stephen makes, and I'd like to read a quote from um, William Gilmore Sims's Life of Marion. We've got these three biographies of Marion that were published between 1809 and 1844, and they are really what bring together this sort of I, I don't want to call it the myth of Marion, but the idea of Marion, the ideal that people see uh, in in Marion, and and the the, the common understanding uh, that people seek inspiration from in Marion. Um, first is Weems, and he's a complete propagandist hagiographer. He uh, even even Peter Ory, who was his quote unquote co-author, said, "Man, you've really you've butchered my my history." Um, Eighteen twenty one, William Doby and James, who is a judge, who as a boy 
Bald Under Marion writes a, a reminiscence, uh, a sketch. It's not very widely distributed, but it's considered to be very historically important because this is somebody who actually fought with Marion. So James is probably the most uh, reliable historical account. And then in 1844, uh, William Gilmore Sims, who's the first great Southern uh, writer, first great fiction writer in the South, sort of be, be like if John Grisham decided to write a biography of, of someone. I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, in 1844, uh, Sims, who had written novels about the American Revolution, decided to write a biography of Marion, and he did a pretty good job. He you know, went to the sources that were available to him. Uh, he's a fiction writer, so there is some rom- romanticization of, um, of Marion in, in his campaigns. Uh, he repeats a lot of the stories that become the subjects of the, the art and the uh, mythology that we're talking about but he he grasps i think the the dilemma pretty well let me read you a quote from his his biography that i think significant this is what he says the fame of marion rests very much upon tradition there is little in the books to justify the strong and exciting relish with which the name is spoken and remembered throughout the country in this respect his reputation is like that of all other heroes of romantic history it is a people's history, written in their hearts rather than in their books, which their books could not write, which would lose all its golden glow if subjected to the cold details of phlegmatic chronicles. So basically, he's saying, look, you know, Marion, the history of Marion's not history history. It's sort of history of an idea. And the idea that we see emerging in the art uh, that's on display at the museum is this idea of Marion as the distinctly Southern hero of the revolution. When you look at paintings like uh, Marion Crossing the PD, which is here uh, from the Ammon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, absolutely spectacular. I mean, I get chills when I stand in front of it. Uh, John Blake White's uh, Marion and Sweet Potato Dinner, and then another version of it that uh, uh, kind of helps tell the story by an unknown artist. Uh, w- um William Washington's uh, Marion at Birch's Mill, which is down near what, what's now Pamplico. Um, these are all um, paintings that exemplify this ideal of Marion, but they exemplify a what I like to call a defensive war. Marion was fighting not to promote liberty, but to defend his homeland against an aggressor. And as we get into the 19th century and the South becomes wealthy uh, through slavery, uh, there's a real sense that we as Southerners are different. Our story is different. We're not out there trying to, to push ideals of, of liberty. We're, we've got our own way of life, and it's been defended ever since the days of Francis Marion. So great co- comparison that's made in this exhibit uh, between Marion's crossing the PD uh, and the famous Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, and Stephen, forgive me, the name of the artist? Emmanuel Lloyd. Emmanuel Lloyd's paints Washington crossing the Delaware the year after Marion crossing the PD. But there are wonderful companion pieces because when you look at Washington crossing the Delaware, there's Washington resplendent in his uniform. There's an American flag behind him. The, you know, he's the prow of the boat, and it's really got this sort of sense of carrying uh, liberty, the fight for liberty and, and freedom and all the sort of ideals that are wrapped up in the Revolution. Marion crossing the PD, as uh, has been said, looks like a bunch of guys coming back from a deer drive. Um, and they're dogs and, and bugles, and you know you have to really look hard to find Marion in the middle of this crowd of, of frontiersmen. 
and it's got a sort of understatement and a sort of self-possession. It's not pushing any ideas. It's not pushing any um, ideological arguments. It's just representing this group of people, this group of backwoodsmen who were defending their home and hearth from an invader. And I think that's the sense. When you get into the 1830s with the nullification controversy, abolition becomes more of an issue in the 1840s and 50s. Southerners were looking for someone that they could uh, identify with historically and say, this is, this is what we fought for. Um, and indeed, during the, the secession um, movement, Marion is, is the spirit of Marion is invoked time and time again. So that's a, another way that story sort of played out. But so, it, Stephen, I'm sorry. You continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want to play off of the William Gilmore Sims quote. Um, so, yeah, Francis Marion uh, was legendary, right? The title of the exhibition is "Is Legend: Francis Marion in the PD." Now, the exhibition specifically focuses on that part of the Marion legend that occurred here. Francis Marion was well known in the Low Country because that's where he was from. He was well known in the Mid State. Uh, for his military campaigns there. But the core of the Marian myth, the Marian legend, happened here in this area in the PD. And uh, that's really central to the theme of the exhibition. And that's that partisan period between August of 1780 and April of 1781. After April of 1781, ironically, Marian partners up, one of the most unlikely partnerships in military history, uh, with none other than uh, Light Horse Harry Lee from Virginia, Robert E. Lee's father. And they proved to be a very um, uh, compatible and very powerful team. And they, uh, under orders from Nathaniel Green, uh, set about reducing British outposts in what we would now call the Midlands, Fort Watson, Fort Mott. Uh, Marion takes on a whole new role. And then, ultimately, Marion is in the last great battle in South Carolina, Utah Springs, later in 1781 fighting as a as a field commander under green so the period we're interested in and the period that resonates in our hearts and minds is this partisan period this is when marion's fighting with the militia this is when he's camped on snow's island this is where all the great uh ideologically significant moments uh be they real or imagined in marion's career take place but being i understand the historical accuracy and the significance and the uh, you know the, the the artifacts of the paintings hmm. that you want to depict his life and career. I guess as a uh, as a member of the military, you know, in the weirdest way. But but I want, I want to ask both of you this, and I'm talking to Stephen and, and Ben and Henry. Jump in here if you'd like. To me, he's always it's, it's always been symbolic. He is a an overachiever. He is an underdog. He is rebellious. I mean, I understand the historical accuracy or not. I understand um, what he was or not. But could Southerners be somewhat captivated by the, the symbolism of, of, of the, the, the consummate overachiever, uh, the, the rebellious underdog? I mean, we Southerners have always kind of identified ourselves in that, in that I, area. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't at all call him an, an overachiever in that sense. I mean, he's, he was indeed the underdog. Uh, Marion was also someone who very well knew his limits. Marion never put his men's lives at risk. He never, uh, when, when he didn't have to. He was very cautious. He was very circumspect. He was very limited. Uh, you know, he told Tom, <clears throat> Thomas Sumter, who was his um, fellow um, partisan commander and, and somebody that Marion despised, he told him, he said, uh, you'd wade through rivers of blood to get a victory. Marion wasn't going to put these people. These were ordinary people. These weren't professional soldiers. These weren't people who had signed up for this, so to speak. They were fighting, again, to defend their home and hearth. 
So Marion was always very careful and very cautious, never would commit his troops unless he had a pretty good idea that he could win because it didn't, it wouldn't take but one battle for him to get knocked off. So he was a man who was very conscious of his limits. He was very humble, uh, but he was also a man of great honor and personal integrity. And several of the paintings in the exhibit uh, exemplify Marion at Birch's Mill, just down the road from yeah, your right. home in, in Pamplico is a great the the legend, especially as it is represented in these paintings, is less about Marion's military accomplishments as it is about his character. And in a couple of these paintings, like John Blake White's famous sweet potato dinner scene, Marion is in the center of the foreground. He's meant to be a, a central figure. So we have a misunderstanding. I mean, oh, well, I when, I, when I when I perceive the symbolism of Marion to be. Uh, the the ultimate contrarian and and the rebellious outsider and I mean have I missed it I mean is he that is that the essence well, the of legend, Marion the legend or, certainly persists yeah no he was very much I mean Marion didn't want to be where he was I mean he had he enlisted in the Continental but who Army would? in all honesty he who was, would he enlisted in the Continental Army in 1775 fought at the Battle of Fort Moultrie was a colonel in the Continental Army throughout South Carolina Battle of Savannah Battle of Siege of Charleston and he um he wanted to have a traditional military career. He didn't want to be some backwoods partisan, but that was what was required of him. That was so great. I think Stephen's absolutely right. When you look at the, um, the sweet potato dinner, of course, the sweet potato dinner, interestingly enough, throughout its history, it's, it's painted, it's copied. Hold on to that. I don't want to get you. We got to take a break. I'm going to pay some okay. bills, but I want to come back and touch on the sweet potato dinner. We'll take a break. I'll take a break. Break sweet potato. We'll take a break. <laughs> we'll be back in just a second. This is one of these short sessions because we've got more bills to pay. This is commercial radio. The only way we stay on the air is to generate some deal, uh, some sense True. of profit. But I want to I want to go back to, to something, and I'll let either one of you three. I won't pose the question to one individually. I'll let the three of you kind of answer accordingly. I think most of us understand, those of us who have dedicated some degree of interest in Marion, we understand how heroic his efforts were. Um, Stephen, I'll, I'll start with you. I think we fail to understand. You're talking about the ethics and decency and morality uh, of the leadership he exuded. I mean, can, can, kind of speak to that for a second. Yeah, so Marion led by example, and I think this is picked up a lot in, in the artworks, right, in the paintings that are in this exhibition, um, specifically in the sweet potato dinner scene, right, um, which is basically the stories that uh, Marion invites this British officer into his secret camp at Snow's Island. He leads him in with a blindfold. He he comes into the camp, and then Marion, although he is a, a savage, right, who's living out in the wilderness, uh, his men don't even wear uniforms. They don't fight formal warfare. They they're you know engaging with the British in these sneak attacks in their camps uh, at night. Uh, so Marion is seen as this this savage, right? But in these artworks and in these stories that are told about him, he is also a gentleman. There's a sense of propriety. There's a decency of his character. So when we talk about the sweet potato dinner scene, I think that's really the significance there. We're talking about Francis Marion as this, you know, he doesn't lose his sense of decorum, especially when you compare him to some other figures on the British side like Captain Butler and the Birch's yeah. Mill scene. So, so the story, to pick up on what Stephen was saying, the story is this, this British officer uh, comes into Marion's camp to negotiate a prisoner exchange. He's blindfolded, taken on to Snow's Island. Of course, Snow's Island is so evocative. It's the it's Marion's lair. It's his athelney. It's the it's the, Sherwood the Forest. great safe place for, for his, fighting, his fighting force. 
so this British officer comes in, they negotiate prisoner exchange. Marion says, won't you stay for dinner? And he said, okay. And Marion leads him over to uh, dinner, which is laid out um, in the stories. It's laid out on a pine log. In the um, John Blake White painting, it's on a table. In the John Blake White painting, and I'll let Stephen, the art expert, talk about this, but it's a really interesting. It's a very formal tableau with the Marion and British officer standing around the table. It's almost got this sort of sacral or Eucharistic appearance to it, like they're about to share some sacred meal. But the meal is sweet potatoes and water. Sweet potatoes cooked in the ashes of the fire and water. And the story uh, is that the British officer was so uh, impressed that these men were living in the swamp um, without proper clothes and fighting, as Henry points out, with very little support, uh, that he goes back to Georgetown and resigns his commission. He says, you can't fight against people who are that dedicated. Now, that's, interestingly enough, that's kind of an old trope. Uh, those who would have read that in the 19th century, if you were educated in the 19th century, uh, you would have um, probably learned Latin and Greek, and in learning Greek, you would have read Plutarch, read Plutarch who was a, a Greek historian at the end of the um, first century B.C., and Plutarch writes a lot about the Spartans, uh, Greek um, city of Sparta, city-state of Sparta, and the Spartans were the toughest of the tough. They were the great warriors. They were, you know, slept on the ground, no blankets. Uh, they were uh, just the, the most incredible fighting force the ancient world had ever seen, and they had this famous dish called the black broth. Uh, that was made out of uh, vinegar and pig's blood and offal that they lived on. And, the you know, the sort of uh, uh, conventional wisdom, and this is repeat, repeated often in Plutarch, is uh, you can't fight against these people because they're not scared to die. How do we know they're not scared to die? Because they eat this awful thing uh, when they're, when they're uh, fighting. This, anybody who would live on that is obviously not afraid of death. So it's kind of an old trope that you're – what you eat as a fighting force somehow says something about who you are, but it, that is used in the in the sweet potato story. That is leveraged into this idea of dedication, of loyalty, of steadfastness, of, of enduring privations uh, in the interest not only of your home and hearth, but also of liberty. Now, the interesting thing, and this is one of those wonderful instances where the archaeology and the myth and the history all come together, uh, when we were doing the archaeological work for the Trail Commission, uh, Steve Smith, obviously finding Snows Island is a big deal. If we could ever find that camp on Snows Island, it would be the, the Holy Grail. Uh, so Steve Smith, uh, in 2006-2007, spent a lot of time uh, doing archaeological testing around Snows Island, was not able to find the camp on Snows Island, but on the other side of the PD River, on the north side of the river, a place called Dunham's Bluff, uh, we were able to confirm an earthwork there uh, that was known as Marion's Redoubt. Uh, was actually from the Revolutionary War, and then we found a camp around it, uh, late 18th century militia camp. Clearly, it's a Francis Marion camp. Um, that's probably the greatest thing that was discovered in the um, in the Francis Marion Trail Commission work, and. W we're pretty sure that camp guarded the approach to Snows Island. If you wanted to get over to Snows Island from the north or the east side of the PD River, you had to come through there. The east side of the PD River was was much more loyal to the king. So if they were going to get attacked, it was going to be from what's now Marion County and Horry County was was Tory country and during the Revolution. So um, we were excited about finding this camp, and in the camp we found. Um, trash pits called middens and in those middens were you know everything from gun parts to uh to animal bones and not only did we find uh, horse bones um cow bones pig bones 
Uh, we found deer bones, turkey bones, fish bones, and oyster shells. So not only were Marion and his men uh, not eating sweet potatoes, but they were, you know, having oyster roasts around the fire when when uh, a, a bag of oysters could be brought up from Georgetown, which makes good sense. In the winter months, you can put oysters in a bag and put them on a barge or put them on the pommel of your horse and carry them. So uh, those of us who grew up in the PD and who've hunted and fished in the PD know that you're not just going to eat sweet potatoes in the PD swamp. You're always going to find some critter or, or fish to eat. And that was indeed the case, that the sweet potato story is is apocryphal. It's meant to symbolize Marion's. Okay, hold on to that. If these guys can stay, I'm going to convince them. I'll have to pay them a little more money. We'll get them to, to stay for one more segment. I want to go down the um, how you can find out more. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 I don't know why I'm giving the number. We're not taking calls. <laughs> We've got some distinguished guests with us this morning. There's very few times that we use the word distinguished and wake up Carolina in the same sentence. Uh, ben, I, I've aggravated Ben and Henry for a while. Didn't know Stephen until today, but I've aggravated them a while to let's do a podcast together about Francis Marion. Um, I've, I've always suspected he's one of the most consequential figures, uh, politically, culturally, societally, in, in, in South Carolina history, particularly in the PD region's history. So Ben texted me, I think Friday and said, we think we can do something sooner than later. We got together. Henry and Stephen made themselves available, and for the last hour, we talked about the life and legacy of um, of General Francis Marion, talked about the Francis Marion Trail Commission, <laughs> it being created by the General Assembly. Um, ben, I'll, I'll go to you for a second, then I'll go to Stephen. So so has the General Assembly been, and because I want to help if I can, has the General Assembly been as supportive of exploring every vent or every avenue of heritage tourism in the Francis Marion um, have are there things they can do to help us be more successful? Not in marketing. That's a cheesy right. way to say it. Making known how mm. important Marion was. Yeah, well, certainly in the early years of the Trail Commission, the, the General Assembly and Senator Leatherman were very supportive, and, and we were well-funded and got a lot of work done. Again, that sort of petered out during the recession. Uh, I think there's, you know, we're doing better in terms of the economy and tax revenues and I know Henry's work with the governor. Governor McMaster is hugely supportive of, of these types of initiatives, and, and this one in particular. So I know Henry has been working with Governor McMaster to try to get some some more funding. But uh, I think the opportunities there. I think the uh, interest and the the inclination is there on the part of our General Assembly and our elected leaders uh, in general. Uh, I think you just got to have a way to funnel that. I think what Henry is doing and and Fred Carter and others to bring the Trail Commission back is a good way to sort of funnel some of that. Now, the SC-225, um, the 225th anniversary of the um, of the Revolutionary War in South Carolina, uh, that's been well-funded. There are grants. We're now waiting on a, a $70,000 grant that uh, the Archaeological Institute of the PD has applied for to excavate what could be some spectacular Revolutionary War-related sites uh, off the old river road near Pamplico that could have been burned by uh, one of the more consequential figures in the revolution uh, in the PD, a guy named uh, James Weemus or Weems, it's W-E-M-Y-S-S. He was a a British officer who was sent from King Street to Sherall and marched 70 miles and burned everything within a um, uh, a 15-mile wide path. Uh, He was specifically sent when Marion got everybody stirred up in late summer of 1780 uh he was sent to to put down the rebellion in the pd so marion 
retreats, goes up into North Carolina for a little while to get out. You know, he couldn't take on a whole British regiment, so he, they disappeared. Uh, this fellow Weems marches uh, up uh, to uh, Sherall and burns every building between King Street and Sherall. Uh, notoriously hangs a ferryman from what's now Florence County named Adam Cusack. Uh, did more to turn people to the American cause in the PD than probably Marion did. So we we may have a Weems-related burn site. It's also a site that archaeological testing has shown has a strong African-American component based on the uh, artifacts that came from the testing. So we're waiting to hear from the SC-225 committee to see if we'll get the money to excavate this, uh, fully excavate the site. It could wind up being a major tourist attraction. So the money's available. I think the, the spirit's willing, but um, we just need a good way to funnel it. And, Stephen, the, the museum obviously is on board with, with, with articulating this version of history. Yeah, of course. So this exhibition is going to be uh, uh, up until the middle of August. But we have a permanent historical exhibition upstairs where we interpret the Marian story. The benefit of the exhibition is that we can focus in on a particular theme and we can expand the story and we can use all these artifacts that have been recovered in the archaeology along with these artworks that are on loan from major national art institutions to, um, you know, it's not going to be here forever. But it's an excellent way to look at Marion from this particular angle of myth and, and legend. So, um, you know, even if you're not uh, an archaeologist, uh, then I think this ex- exhibition will attract you with the art. And if you're, you know, if art appreciation isn't necessarily your forte, uh, then the archaeology certainly holds enough interest. Uh, and both of those things serve to tell both sides of the story. And, and, Henry, the Trail Commission is, is kind of an apparatus that promotes and makes more people aware of uh, what Ben and, and Stephen are involved in. You've obviously become intimately involved in it. How can others help you? I mean, if there's somebody out there who wants to make a contribution, wants to be more involved, wants to be um, helpful in whatever way, shape, or form, I mean, how, how do they do that? Well, they can obviously give money, <clears throat> but just as important, just use it. There's 16 sites on this trail commission of significance that we've talked about this morning. And just going by to see those sites, they are being updated right now. We're putting out an app on your phone that as you go up to these apps or, I mean, these sites, or as you're riding to one site to the other, you can learn about um, some of the the things that Francis Mann did and what made those sites significant. There's terrific amount of information out there for the public. I think using it would be real a, a very good thing to do. But money is always important because it does take money, and the state is very supportive, but there's always additional monies that you really need. And Francis Marion's archaeological, uh, to find those sites and verify them does take time and money, and Ben has been very diligent in doing that. Ben, when, when, I, when I go to a Springsteen concert, I know I'm hearing Thunder Road and Born to Run. Right. I don't know what else I'm hearing, but I know right. I'm hearing those two. When I went to my buddy's 60th birthday Saturday in Charleston, I knew there were going to be three or four stories told. Right. I didn't know the others, but I knew three or four that we always repeat. Probably get nauseum yeah. repeating these stories. Yeah. What, what are the three or four stories that you want to make people most aware of 
about the life of Francis. Well, I'll, I'll tell you another one that's represented. It's a, it's a Florence, what's now Florence County story that's represented in, in a painting, um, a study of which is in the exhibit. We don't have the full painting, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. But um, one of the uh, uh, paintings in the exhibit is a study for a painting done by an artist named William Washington uh, called Marion at Birch's Mill. And as you know, Birch's Mill is on the PD River. Uh, I like to tell people it's behind the Delta Mills plant there near Pamplico. And it's a beautiful bluff over the river. And there was a ferry there. And uh, there was a mill where you'd bring your corn to grind. There was probably a store. It was a significant settlement starting in the uh, as early as the 1740s. Uh, Marion was in and out of Birch's Mill a lot during the war. It's right there on the old river road. Um, may have even been a little skirmish fought there. But Marion utilized the mill and the ferry a lot uh, at the end of the war. 1782, June of 1782, he camps at Birch's Mill for several weeks and sends out a proclamation. And this is historical fact. He sends out a proclamation to all the Tories east of the PD, and he says, come in, uh, surrender, give your parole. I'll let you keep your firearms. I won't molest you, but you got to come swear that you're going to be loyal uh, to the American cause and not fight against us. So over the course of several weeks, people are coming across the ferry and shuffling into the camp and giving their paroles. One day, uh, a man named Captain Butler, a notorious, we're told, a no- notorious Tory, uh, comes into camp and Marion's men all kind of stiffen and they pull him aside and say, hey, boss, um, we know what you said about not molesting anybody, but we got a, we got a thing with this fellow and you know, we're going to take him out back if you don't mind. And Marion said, absolutely not. I've given my word. Uh, I, I, that he will not be molested. I will protect him personally. If you want him, you got to come through me. But he had supposedly killed some surrendered soldiers in what was called the Lynch's Creek Massacre. Yeah. So Marion stands up for this guy against his own men because that he'd given his word and he wasn't going to just summarily execute someone. That gets made into a painting by William Washington. It's a magnificent painting. It's as big as the wall behind you. And when my father was in the state senate back in the late 60s, it came up for sale. And Dad got the Senate to buy it, and they hung it outside the Senate chamber because Marion was a member of the state Senate at the time. Not a lot of people don't know this, but Marion was elected to the state Senate uh, at the end of the Revolution. So he's serving as a state senator and uh, fighting, uh, continuing to fight with his uh, brigade. Uh, we asked that it be loaned to uh, the exhibit. It would have been perfect in the connection with Florence and all that sort of stuff. And we were told that the state house doesn't. State House Commission doesn't loan artwork, so we were able to get the um, get the study for it, which is smaller, uh, but it's still pretty powerful. But that's one of those examples, uh, a story that's an example of Marion's um, integrity and his decency. And it appears, um, I think it only appears in one of the biographies. I think it only appears in um, Sims. It may appear in James. It doesn't appear in Weems's biography, but I like to think it's true because we know. About that same time, uh, when the British are evacuating Charleston, you know, they leave Charleston on December 14, 1782. That's when the British finally left South Carolina for good. Marion gets orders. I can't remember who the superior officer was, but he gets a, a note saying, um, we have intelligence that the British soldiers are filling butts, barrels, with fresh water in the Cooper River to load on the ships to have fresh water for the, for the voyage home. We think you should go and attack them. And Marion says, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'll sooner, I'd will i sooner protect them doing that than attack them. He said, they're leaving. They're just trying to get what they need to get the hell out of here. Um, 
I'm not going to go attack them. So it was, uh, that sort of thing is very similar to what you see in the Birch's Mill. But, but is that the curiosity that a lot of us have? How could a man so vicious be so decent? But he wasn't vicious. That's the thing. He was tenacious. He was a great fighter. He was a brilliant Was tactician. he into guerrilla warfare? I mean, he was into it because that's the only way well, he could it, fight. But, but did it require a certain degree of viciousness? I mean, I understand, I mean, you I understand your point. Well, the, the, the piece I read you on the break from um, Light Horse Harry Lee, you know, where he talks about how he was you know, not attractive, his visage was not pleasing, and his manners were not prepossessing. And he says he was quiet, humble, you know, spoke very little. I mean, he was not a, a, a charismatic Some out-of-control maniac right. with a burning desire to right. kill people. Right, right, right. No, that, that, that's the opposite of Marion. St- Stephen, how important is it from the museum's perspective that, that we, the people of the PD and, and the state in general, understand more about this story? And how does the museum help facilitate that understanding? Well, I think it's important that we understand the facts of any anything historical. Right? And in Francis Marion's case, it's important because, as I said you know, at the beginning of the interview, uh, he was a background character throughout my life. And I think that he it's that way for a lot of people. They're familiar with him, but they don't know the details of this exhibition and the work that we do at the museum to tell and interpret the Marion story, that's the public's chance to come and and learn the truth about Francis Marion. You know, what's interesting to me about uh, him is that, you know, he was certainly significant enough that these artists took it upon themselves to focus on him and his story as a, a facet of American history. And anytime the museum can put our local stories into the larger context, I think that's when those real educational opportunities happen. And, and being in the story in general, one of the, uh, one of the most consequential figures in, in early American history is from here. I, mean, yeah, it, well, I don't want to make it, it that sound that simple. But and, I mean, and consequential both in his deeds and what he represented and what he came to be seen to represent. Um, I put it simply to people for 25 years, we've been sawing this log of Francis Marion, you know, promoting the Francis Marion story, um, through some of these initiatives. And one of the sort of simple ways I put it to people, uh, is that, um, by 1780, there was a stalemate in the Northeast, all the great battles, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, all those battles had been fought and there was a stalemate. So the only way that the British could win the war was by taking the South. Uh, when Marion came on the scene in 1780, British were inches from taking South Carolina. And I think the argument is if the British had taken South Carolina, had consolidated their hold in South Carolina, uh, the war would have been over in favor of the British. Uh, what largely kept them from consolidating that hold was Francis Marion. So if Francis Marion hadn't been doing what he was doing between uh, August of 1780 and April of 1781, in what's now the PD, we probably would have lost the Revolutionary War. I don't think too many historians can can dispute that. They had us on the ropes, and Marion was able to keep give us a little bit of um, spring off those ropes uh, through what he did. And that's well, a know, great... We, we've talked a lot about these early biographies, uh, but you know the Marion legend persists. There is mm-hmm. you know, what we know about him... Uh, largely through the early biographies by Weems, by James, by Sims, uh, and 
there were there were later biographies mm. too. Uh, but there's also been some recent research. Um, there's a book published about eight years ago by a man named John Aller called Francis or uh, called Swamp Fox: How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Mm. So there's certainly uh, you know we talk about the resurgence of interest in Marion through the Trail Commission, but he's out there in other people's thoughts and ideas and research as well. And, and and Henry, I guess keeping that fluid and alive is right. part of the Trail Commission. And I think Ben's last statement about Francis Marion is the significance of him. That period of time and this in the time this country was stalemate the North, and their their battle plan was to come up from the South. Had us on the ropes, Henry. Oh, absolutely, and he single-handedly did it. That's why and he's to, so famous. And to Ben's point, not with a bunch of trained soldiers, but rather a right. team of misfits. No, and I, I've, I've said this, um, you know, down at the statue dedication when we first really started this was the uh, my late friend Bill Chandler and I had a little get-together for interested parties at uh, Witherspoon's Ferry, uh, what's now called Venner's Landing in Johnsonville, on August 17th, 2005. That was the... Um, uh, what, what would that have been? That would have been the 225th anniversary of Marion taking command. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was the anniversary of Marion taking command of the uh, of the Williamsburg militia, and um, we had uh, some speechifying, and everybody went to the to the VFW hut to have a, a few drinks afterwards. Um, and one of the things I said, Bill Chandler told everybody to take the shoes off that they were standing on holy ground. Uh, one of the things I said was, that, you know, we live in a world where um, we think everything that happens is the result of great forces, geopolitical forces that are uh, driven by money and power and that sort of thing. And you know, no one in 1780, if you'd ask a man on the street in London uh, in 1780, would the British Army uh, be, in essence, defeated by a bunch of people living in a place he'd never heard of? Uh, they never would have. They never would have believed that. But I think it's a great sign that history can be changed by the most unlikely people in the in the most unlikely places, and that everything we do can have significance beyond what we understand. The human spirit is timeless. That's right. That's right. Well said. Thanks to all three of you. Yep. We'll Thank take you. we'll Thank take you. a break. Uh, we'll we'll download this on podcast format. Yep. Right, Rev. We'll publish it tomorrow morning. Rev will have it um up and running by ten. What do you call it? Produced? Published. Yeah, we'll have one published. Polished. Excuse me. P- polished. It'll be a lot of polishing drop. up. I thought drop was. No, well, that's, that's my word. His is published. Yeah. Uh, I think you get paid more to publish than you do to drop one. Right. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I want to thank our sponsors. Carolina Bank serves communities throughout northeastern South Carolina, offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances. They're prepared to help you reach. Your financial goals, Carolina Bank, banking on tradition since 1936. Member, FDIC, Schofields, Ace Hardware, your one-stop shop for all hardware, paint and lawn and garden needs, plus all things sporting goods, including firearms, safes, clothing, footwear, and more. Pepsi of Florence represent the entire product line of PepsiCo, one of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Pepsi of Florence also serve brands from other great companies, such as Dr. Pepper, Canada Dry, Lipton Tea, Gatorade, and various regional brands. Mickey Finn's largest South Carolina liquor wholesaler, serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I-95 in Florence. They support USC athletics, including 
Williams Bryce and Colonial Life Arena. Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, if you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co-op's new PD Commerce Center. Uh, an industrial park located at the I-95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at mpdcoop or pdec.com. <laughs> 